This is the Tribe of Millionaires podcast from GoBundance. The tribe of healthy, wealthy, generous people who choose to live epic lives. Listen Tuesdays for featured guests and Fridays for GoBundance member spotlights. But listen always to hear how our guests have grabbed life big. Now, here's your host, Jamie Gruber. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the show. We've got a very interesting, probably the most interesting guest. And I mean that. I mean that, Michael, that I've ever had on this show. Michael Francis, man. He was one of the biggest money earners the mob had seen since Al Capone and the youngest individual on Fortune Magazine's survey of the 50 biggest mafia bosses, ranking number 18, five behind a guy you might have heard of named John Gotti. His autobiography, Blood Covenant, is excellent, and it tells his story from the early days in the mob and rise to power through his Damascus Road experience that changed his life forever and led him to do the unthinkable, the unexpected, and by some, the unbelievable, quitting the mob and really following Christ, following Jesus. So now dubbed the Born Again Don in a January 1991 feature article in Vanity Fair magazine, the story of his conversion is, in his words, a testament of God's willingness to reach into the heart of any man, regardless of their past or the present condition of their lives. Michael, man, welcome. Great to have you. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. I want to start, you know, we'll get into, you know, your time in the mob and everything, but your dad was a, a well-known in his era, especially a high-end uh, person in La Cosa Nostra, right? He was a, a, an underboss, I believe, in the family that he was associated with. So the, the natural inclination is like, okay, well, obviously son follows dad, but that wasn't originally where you were going. You were in medical school. You were pursuing that career. Can you just talk a little bit about that and what shifted? What drove you from kind of this medical profession over to, you know, being a very significant figure in the mafia at one point? Sure. My dad was uh, one of the most high profile figures of his day. And that's back in the late 50s, uh, all through the 60s. And he was the underboss for Joe Colombo, you know, one of the five New York Cousin Oster families. Very, very high profile, kind of like the John Gotti of his day in many, in, you know, many ways uh, in that uh, he had such Tremendous media coverage, uh, tremendous media coverage. He was a major target of law enforcement. And so I grew up in that kind of environment, you know, knowing my dad was was that guy. Uh, But he didn't want this life for me originally. He wanted me to go to school. He said, son, get an education. That's where it's at. I don't want you on the street. He wanted me to be a doctor. You know, he said to me, you're going to be the first professional in the family. And that's really what he, you know, his aspirations were for me. Uh, and I was on that road. I mean, I was a, a pre-med student, Hofstra University, uh, when my dad uh, got in some very serious trouble. He was indicted several times throughout the 60s, uh, three times in the state of New York, went to trial and was acquitted on all those cases. But then they indicted him in federal court for masterminding a nationwide string of bank robberies. He was convicted in 66. In 67, sentenced to 50 years in prison. In 1970, while I was a pre-med student, he went off to do his time. And that's when things started to change for me because 50 year sentence, you know, we thought it would be a death sentence for him. He was 50 years old when he went in. So now it's okay. How do we, uh, you know, help my dad get out of prison? Because he always claimed he was framed. And until this day, I believe that 100 percent, I'll take it to my grave. My dad was no bank robber. So what do you do? I mean, as a son, I had to try to help him. Otherwise, he would die in prison and our family would be destroyed. And, you know, I really didn't have an option at that point. Wow. Your dad, you, you, it's funny, following you and reading about your relationship with your dad, you, I say you had a lot of reverence for your dad. You revered him very highly. What was it about him that made you so, I mean, other than him, of course, being your father, but what was it, what attributes did he have that made you so connected to this guy? Because there's a lot of turbulence as you get later in life with him, but you were always so, so, you know, defensive of him, drawn to him. What was it about him? Well, you know, number one, he was a very good father to me. He was very, very supportive. He was good to my brothers and sisters, uh, good to my mother, uh, the way I viewed it at that time. He was a charismatic guy. Everybody looked up to him. You know, he uh, he had a lot of respect. Um, he taught me very, very well. He always taught me to do the right things. At least I viewed it that way at that point in time. And uh, and so I loved him. You know, he was supportive of me and my sports. I played sports in school. He would always show up, you know, whenever he could. And, and that was quite often. He supported my education. He taught me the right things. 
you know, taught me to be honest, not to lie. I mean, he, you know, he just, he did all the right things for me as a dad, you know, and unfortunately he was, uh, you know, distracted so often because of, you know, the, the, uh, uh, law enforcement, uh, targeting him the way they did. But even through that, he managed to, uh, you know, to do the right thing at home. And, you know, he would never bring into the house what was going on in his life in the outside world. He tried. He wouldn't talk about it. Uh, he just tried to have us be a family. So I respected that, you know, and uh, yeah, I just had a great love for him. Makes sense. So you start to go down this path and you were you were made at a very young age, you became a made man. You know, you hear the different terminology. Everybody watches mafia movies. I'm sure they've heard that term before. Uh, I think you were 24 when that happened. So Correct. can you take me through that. I mean, the ceremony, you know, your mindset, where you were going, if you just kind of sort of take me through what that experience was like of becoming a made man. Sure. Well, you know, it started when my dad proposed me uh, into that life. I mean, you can't just go up and tell somebody, hey, I'd like to join. Somebody has to propose you, vouch for you. I came to that conclusion because we just thought I can help him more on the street than I could in any other way. You know, we needed money for attorneys and, and uh, you know, maybe some political connections to try to get him out. So <clears throat> we thought that was the best way to pursue that <clears throat> and not have him die in prison. So I was proposed in, I believe, 1971 or 72. I spent two and a half years um, as a recruit where I had to kind of learn the ropes, prove myself. Uh, and that could have been done in various ways. And, uh, and then in 1975, on Halloween night was the night that I got inducted in a very serious ceremony. I don't know if you want me to describe the ceremony, but yeah, I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting if you don't mind. Yeah, there was six of us that night, six recruits, and um, it was late at night. It was in a catering hall that Joe Colombo's son had uh, owned at that time. And, you know, this was obviously a very covert uh, meeting. So we had to be very careful that law enforcement wasn't uh, surveilling or watching us. So it was a dimly lit room late at night. The six of us walked in individually. We took the oath individually. The boss at that time, um, Tom DeBella, was seated at the head of like a horseshoe configuration. The underboss and consigliere, two official positions were to his left and right. And then all of the captains or capos uh, were alongside of them. And uh, we had about 15 in our family at that point. And I walked down the aisle, stood in front of the boss, held out my hand. He took a knife, cut my finger. Some blood dropped on the floor. This is a blood oath. I cupped my hands. He took a picture of a saint. It was a Catholic altar card, put it in my hands, lit it aflame. It didn't hurt. It burned quickly. It was merely symbolic. And he said, tonight, Michael Francis, you are born again into a new life, into Cosa Nostra. Violate what you know about this life, betray your brothers, and you'll die and burn in hell like the saint is burning in your hands. And he said, do you accept? I said, yes, I do. And after that ceremony, you're a made man. You're official. And uh, the other five guys went in the room. They all took the oath. And that's how it started for me. You uh, obviously since have moved away from the mafia with right in your bio and obviously your whole brand. But even then, I think you talk about like you maybe had some initial doubts right after that ceremony about what what did, what did I just do? What did I just sign up for? What did I get myself into? Is that fair? Well, you know, since, you know, there are a lot of guys in that life that uh, aspire to be part of that life their whole life. I mean, they started out young. They were street guys. They were doing things, you know, illegal things, you know, at an early age. Well, that wasn't me. You know, I was a student in school and I was I had different aspirations at that point in time. I was an athlete, so I didn't go through that process. I I really did this to help my dad. And so once I got in, I mean, you 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 realize the seriousness of the oath that you took. I mean, you know, you violate that oath, you can pay for it with your life. So I took it very seriously back then. I don't I, I can't say, well, what did I do? But I realized the seriousness of it that night at uh, the commitment that I had just made. And I said to myself, look, I'm going to be the best possible mob guy I could be. I want to make my father proud and I want to do the right thing here. And so, you know, that's the impression it left on me that night. Wow. So there's this really cool documentary for those listening, docu-series out called Mafia States of America. Patrick Bet David hosted it. It's you, Sammy Gravano. People know him, Sammy the Bull, like John Gotti's underboss. Well-known, well-known dude from the 80s, right? Like, you know, a uh, uh, true blue mobster, like who you think of a mobster, you think of Sammy the Bulger, the name, everything, right? That's what you think of. Um, it's amazing. First off, so kudos to you and anybody that wants to get it, you can go uh, find it online and buy it. I think it's thirty nine ninety five to get the, the series. Uh, the preview in and of itself, I mean, Patrick does a great job of creating intrigue, right? There's this discussion that you're both having 
where he's challenging sort of your entry into the mafia. 1975 was the first year anyone had been made in many years. There was the sense that there's a you know a stack of guys that deserved it in his words before you, right? You got you were, you take exception to that. And I'm curious with given the the you know the the distance you've made you've taken from that life and everything else like that, why does that still bother you? Why does his prodding and pushing and questioning your ability to be made when you were made? Why does that bother you? Well, you know, let me make it clear. It only bothered me because that was the first time I ever heard that. That was coming from <laughs> Sammy. So it was really just my response. You know, Got listen, it. you have to prove yourself. And when you prove yourself to the satisfaction of the boss and the people in charge, you proved yourself, whether it be one day or 10 years or 20 years. You know, here's the thing. From the 1950s right up till 1975, they had an expression in our life where the books were closed, meaning they weren't making any new guys. The only time they would bring a new guy into the family is if somebody died and they had to replace him in all of the five families. So the books were closed. So there were guys actually waiting 20 years to be made member. Doesn't automatically mean that they were more capable than me. You know, just, hey, it was just that tough luck that the books were closed. So when the decision was made, number one, you know, one thing Sammy said was true, I believe, that, you know, they gave deference to my dad because my dad earned that. He deserved that. He was the underboss. He was a loyal soldier. He got a 50-year sentence. And if his son could help him in any way get out of prison, well, then he deserved that. But I still had to prove myself. You know, and that's what I tried to explain to Sammy. When the boss says you're you're ready, you're ready, period. Whether it be one day. I mean, you know, what I wanted to say to him there, hey, let's say they sent a new guy out on an assignment one day and he did something that was so beneficial to the family that he earned his stripes in one day. You're going to argue with that? You know, but, you know, Sammy being Sammy and uh, I, I understood that he was an old timer. And maybe, you know, I could see. And honestly, I did have a lot of resentment from the old timers. Now, not only me, but a lot of the younger guys, because I wasn't the only guy. Uh, look, Carmine Persico's son, who was my age, was made at the same time. Joe Colombo's sons were made, you know, pretty much at the same time. So, you know, that's a life where nepotism is the norm because you want to bring in people that you think you can trust, you know, and if they're groomed within your family, well, you can trust the family members. So nepotism, like in Hollywood, is very big in that life. A lot of guys made their family members and their sons and, you know, it's just the way it goes. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you like we talked about, your, your 18th number ranking of biggest mafia bosses, I mean, you were successful as a, as a member of La Cosa Nostra, right? You were obviously successful. What were like, so you, you become a made guy, obviously you've got a, a, a crew, you know, you're running this crew, you're making a lot of money. It was five to 8 million a week, I think at one point, right? Like that's at the peak of your, of your, uh, of your earning days, I guess I could say like, wh- what, what are you earning from? Like, what were the, what were the things that you were in that you were earning that much money? Well, you know, I, I was fortunate in that I knew how to use that life to benefit me in business. And really that's what it's all about. You know, you know, the life is, Look, no major organization exists without financial support. So bringing money into the operation is uh, is very valuable. And guys that can do that are considered valuable guys. Now, of course, there's other things that needed to be done. But if you're financing a family, you got a little deference, I would say. And uh, like I said, I knew how to use that life. I was very aggressive on the street. I had an entrepreneurial mind. I brought some new things in that hadn't been done before. And um, so I had both legitimate and, and illegitimate things going on. Legitimately, I owned two car dealerships. I had a movie production company in California. I had uh, restaurants that I was associated with and you know, nightclubs. And you know, I had a leasing company. I had auto body shops. So I was into the car industry at that point in time. And then, you know, I had money on the street. I was Shylock and money. Um, I had bookmakers that answered to me out on Long Island. And uh, so I had, you know, both operations going. And then I fell into something that was the most lucrative racket, I would say, at that time in that life. And I'll say this, you know, I've said it before. I'll say it again. It was the most lucrative racket we had since the day of prohibition. No doubt about it. And basically, I fell into a deal where uh, I formed a company with another person and we were defrauding the government out of tax on every gallon of gasoline. And at the time, you know, the gas tax, uh, local, state, federal was about 25 to 30 cents. Um, I mean, local, state and city tax. The federal tax was nine cents a gallon. So you had almost 40 cents a gallon, depending upon exactly where you were located. Well, at the height of my operation, I ran it for several years. Uh, I had over 350 gas stations we either owned or operated. Uh, 
Um, I had 18 companies that were licensed to collect the tax uh, for the government. Uh, and um, we were doing, you know, a half a billion gallons of gas a month. And we were taking down 20, 30, 40 cents a gallon, whatever price we decided to, to give to somebody. So it was a lot of money. And we were bringing in at times, you know, I want to make this clear. I wasn't putting eight to $10 million in my pocket. Oh, right. Operation was grossing eight to $10 million a week, you know, on average. And, uh, you know, when you, when you have that kind of money, you know, on the street, the same way as in the legitimate world, money is power. And uh, you're kicking that much up to the family. They got their good share of it. You know, it's, uh, it goes well for you. And that's, that's what happened with me. When you are in the legitimate side, these car dealerships, all of that stuff, are those acquired in legitimate ways? Meaning, is it just as simple as, hey, I'm going to invest money to buy this dealership or, or partial dealership? Or are these owners that are indebted in some way to somebody that's a member of the mob and you kind of become a partner of theirs to, to you know, because they owe you so much money? Like, how do you acquire legitimate business in that life? Well, it's interesting that you say that the Mazda agency I bought. And I bought that agency at a young age when you couldn't give a Mazda away. I don't know if you remember back in the 70s, but they had the, the Wankel engine and the engines were exploding left and right. Mazda was, you know, it was a tough franchise. But the reason I wanted it was because with the banks at the time, if you had a new car shingle, you got better financing on your used cars and everything else. If you weren't a new car dealer, you couldn't get bank financing. So I said, let me take over this agency. I know Mazda's going to get behind it at some point in time. So I took it over practically no money. The guy just wanted out. He was losing money. So I got it in Hempstead, Long Island. And uh, I built that into a very successful agency because Mazda, you know, they came out with a piston engine. They fixed the Wankel engines. And I had that agency for quite a long time, very successfully. The Chevrolet agency I acquired out in Suffolk County was the oldest Chevrolet agency uh, in the state of New York. It was there for about 50 years. And that I acquired because the owner was a degenerate gambler. And he owed bookmakers uh, that were responsible to me a lot of money. So we took over the agency and that's how I acquired it there. So you get it both ways. Is that, uh, is that normal or is that, was that you, cause you were a little bit more white collar entrepreneurial. Is that the normal way to acquire something? I, look, I think of mob movies, a guy owes you money that you, you break their kneecaps kind of thing, right? Like that's what you see or hear, at least in popular culture. Like, were you different in that regard by doing this or, or was that par for the course, what you did, you know, taking over because they owed you some money? Well, you know, I saw that as an opportunity. I mean, why put the guy in a hospital and get upset with him when he had a valuable asset that could benefit me? So, uh, and I actually told him you could work there. You know, we actually became, uh, we had a relationship, you know, the story with him later on, I was buying a hotel in um, uh, Vegas at the time and I used him as the front guy. Because I thought he was clean. However, however, he had a problem. We couldn't get the license in his name anyway. But that's another story. But uh, yeah, I mean, I tried to use it. I mean, for me, you know, violence was a last resort. It didn't it didn't pay. It wasn't it wasn't good business. So I would rather acquire an asset and make the guy work for me than have to do something that really wasn't a benefit. How unique was that in your time? Like you were I, I I wonder, like you identify, you know, yeah, of course, as a captain in the in the in the family, but also as an entrepreneur in some way, right? Like, was that normal? Was that the normal way of going about things in your era? You know, I don't think so. I mean, I can't speak. There's a lot of guys on the street, and obviously, can't speak for all of them. But you know, Sammy made this point. He said he was more of a gangster. I was more of a racketeer. Yeah. And I, I agree with that. You know, if, if you think of some of the racketeers like Frank Costello, I always hold him up. You know, he was uh, the boss of the family at that time. And he was a smart guy. I mean, he had political connections. You know, he was strong in business. And, you know, he had a long career because of that. And he tried to make violence a last. I mean, the guy lasted, you know, 30 some odd years without an arrest or an indictment. That's hard when you're in that kind of position because he used his head. And he said, look, it's all about money. There isn't an organization on this planet that works well without proper financing. I mean, that's just how it goes. And it's the same for the street. You know, so um, I always looked at it that way. I said, if I can get a benefit out of this, fine. Now, you said, is that the norm? I don't think so. You know, remember this. Um, in our family, Colombo family, we had 115 guys, made guys at that time. We had a lot of associates and people, you know, that were, that were under us but 115 guys that actually took the oath. Out of that 115, maybe 20 of us were earnest, maybe 25. The rest are all, you know, trying to grind out a living, you know, on the street. And uh, so that 
that 15 guys had to really support the family in a big way. So that's why there was such value to guys that were earning money and taking care of uh, the family in that regard. So guys like you, Frank Costello, you mentioned that like thought more with their head. Violence is a last resort. Could you have had as much success financially or whatever as a as a pure entrepreneur? Or is that that last threat of violence, that last like, I have this thing, I could still go there, like the one leap you take from entrepreneur to to not anymore. Like, is that what creates a level of success for even you, even though you didn't go there that often or didn't want to go there? Is that threat of violence what what might have made you a more successful, if you will, entrepreneur, mafia person than if you were just a straight entrepreneur? You know, more successful, I don't know, but obviously it helps. You know, I'll give you an example. When I ran a couple of clubs out on, uh, you know, Long Island and in, and in the city, I would hire bouncers and I would make sure they look big and strong. And I would tell them, I said, listen, I'm not, I didn't hire you to bust up my place and beat up people in here every night. You supposedly be able to talk the part, you know, and you can talk people out of uh, having to beat them up. So just your appearance alone. That's why I hired you. So I don't want to see you wrecking a place every night when somebody gets out of hand. So it's the same in the mob life. Look, you know where I come from. We have that aura. You know what we can produce if you cause us to. So why don't we just do this the right way? And yeah, it works. There's no question about it. You know, I mean, I had a number of incidents where. You know, I could have went the other way. I could have hurt people, put them in the hospital, do all of that. But the fact that I was in the room and they knew who I was and what the mob stood for was enough in many times. You know, most of the times for me, I made it work for me that way. Yeah. Now you're, I mean, you're an entrepreneur today. Would you identify as that? I think so. Yeah. Was that a tough transition? I mean, you have all these entrepreneurial traits, but of course the backing of the mob, like was it a fairly natural transition or was it a little more rocky or tougher than you you would have thought being an entrepreneur today versus being sort of a mafia entrepreneur in the, in the past? Well, you know, I have to be honest with that. I mean, when I first got out of prison and had to move out, uh, you know, I was in Los Angeles at that time and I was under some tough conditions when I walked away and all that kind of stuff. It was very hard for me to get going again because yeah. I had the government still upset with me. I had people on the street still upset. So it really took me a number of years to get myself going. But, you know, honestly, again, you know, I never realized um, when I got out of the life just how intriguing the life is to other people until I started speaking and I started to see that I had a platform because of my former life. Yeah. And, you know, that's the truth. And I can't downplay that. It's the truth. You know, uh, even in my faith, you know, it's a big thing because the, the life that I left and, and where I am now. So the aura of that life in many ways still works for me. What was the turning point for you? So what was it that made you say, maybe this isn't for me? What was the beginnings of that? Yeah. Well, you know, there were a couple of things that happened. You know, there's, uh, it's a tough life and you got to understand that a lot of things happen along the way. There's a lot of politics in that life. and A lot of things came into play, but really what happened, you know, the, the icing on the cake for me is in the mid eighties when the racketeering statute really became widely in use. And you got to, you got to uh, give Giuliani the credit for that in the Southern District of New York. He started to realize how powerful a tool the RICO statute was. And he started to indict a lot of guys, bosses who were insulated up till that time. So I got indicted after, after Giuliani indicted me on a RICO case that I beat. I was acquitted in that case, or I probably wouldn't be here now. He was going to give me a hundred years, but, um, you know, I beat that case, but I was in I was in jail for a while because on another case, they gave me no bail. And I was in with so many guys that had been arrested at that time and indicted. And I'm watching guys go to trial and losing and getting 100 years, 150 years, 70 years. And I said, man, I'm the youngest guy at all of these guys. I said, I've already went to trial five times. I got a huge bullseye on my back. These people want to put me in prison forever. So I started to realize we're in trouble. And then I seen guys becoming informants. You know, Greg Scarpa, one of our guys, was an informant for 20 years. We didn't know it. You know, Willie Boy Johnson, one of Gotti's guys, who I was Shylock and Money with. He was a friend of mine. He's an informant for 20 years. Other guys going down, I'm saying, man, you know, guys don't stand up when they're facing 100 years in prison. I said, we're in trouble. So that's when I realized I got to start to make an exit here. 
And then, of course, you know, without going too far ahead, I met my wife, who's now my wife for 38 years. And I said, she was a young girl. She was 20 years old. I fell in love with her. And I said, what am I going to do? Marry her and then go to jail for the rest of my life? I have to make a choice. And that's what, you know, all of these things started to play in my mind. So you at one point, you know, uh, prior to uh, going to that, that's the, the, the jail sentence that you did serve, uh, or the first one, I guess, because I know you went back on a parole violation later, but uh there's, you know, I don't know how you would put it. Your father either ordered a hit, didn't didn't uh, disagree with a hit. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because this is a guy we talked about at the jump, right? That you you revere. He's this, you know, this unbelievable character in your life, obviously, is your dad. And then you learned of at least, you know, maybe he didn't help you in the circumstance of, of a hit being put out on you. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that how that was for you? Yeah, you got to understand my dad's uh, mentality. My dad was Cousin Ostra till he dies. And for me, what I understood about my father is his legacy meant more to him than anything else in his life. He wanted to be known as a stand-up guy. And, you know, I give Gotti kind of that credit because he was causing Ostra till he died, but Gotti was a lot more outspoken about it, where my father tried to be low-key. For him, the mafia didn't even exist, if anybody asked him. He would say it's a joke. He's not part of it. So when I walked away and a contract was put on my life by my former boss, I mean, that's a fact. Uh, the feds came into prison and said, hey, your father went along with it. He didn't order it, but he went along with it. Now, you know, my dad's out on the street. His son allegedly is going to be a major witness because that's what the feds were trying to sell everybody on the street. They were trying to, you know, force me into cooperation, scare me in that regard. That wasn't going to happen. That's not what I wanted to do. But everybody had that thought. And who walks away? Nobody walks away. Usually when you leave that life, you're in a witness protection program. You're testifying against everybody. Well, I didn't go into a program. I didn't. That's not what I wanted to do. So my father really, you know, what choice did he have? I mean, he didn't want to, you know what I mean? Yeah. He was put, put in a position where he had to say, okay, my son broke the oath, you know? So, and so the word was out on the street. So maybe he said some negative things about me. Who knows? I don't know. But, you know, he was on the street at that time. He had to protect himself. Now, I want to make this clear. Do I think my dad would ever put a bullet in my head? No, I don't believe that. Not at all. But he was in a tough position. And, uh, you know, I sent word out to him. I said, Dad, I'm not going to hurt anybody. Don't worry about it. And I, I think in his heart, he believed me, even though that's such a tough situation, because walking away was even foreign to him. You know, he didn't see that happen before. But uh, so hopefully I explained it properly. You did. No, I, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm, I'm curious. You're, so your mom passed in, I think, 2012, right? You know, I think you've, you've said like 30, 33 years of, of, uh, resentment, I would say, built up for your father, right? You had uh, your siblings. Some of your siblings are, are, you know, I think you have a sister that died of an overdose. Your brother turned informant. He's had his demons. Of course, you've gone through what you've gone through in your life. Uh, and, we're, you know, fast forwarding a bit and then we'll kind of go back. But do you harbor any, I mean, your dad died in 2020. He was like 103. I mean, he lived a full, full life. Do you harbor any resentment against him for the life that you and your family have had over, you know, over your entire lifetime? You know, I, I don't want to say resentment. I don't think that's the right word. But, you know, I, I did have one confrontation with my dad, so to speak. You know, I mean, he denied ever going along with that hit and all that stuff. And he denied there was another incident where my dad, in my eyes, betrayed me. Um, he could have stood up for me and he didn't. And that was another time, you know, when we were both on the street. And that hurt me. It hurt me a lot because uh, I saw that as a betrayal and I was shocked by it. But um, I don't want to say I resent him, but I did have a conversation with him. And I said, Dad, this life has destroyed our family. And and he said to me, this would have never happened if I wasn't framed. And I said, Dad, but you weren't framed for being a doctor, a lawyer or a priest. You were framed because you're a mobster like me. I said, you know, it comes with the territory. I'm not saying it's right. I disagree with that. Don't get me wrong. But as a result of that, our family was destroyed and he would never take responsibility. Never. And as a matter of fact, a lot of times he blamed my mother. And I said, how do you blame my mother for this? You know, and for a long time, I think my guilt was the fact that I supported my dad all along and I went against my mother. I argued with my mother a lot until, you know, the few months before she died, I started to realize she really opened up to me and she said, you know, why, why did you take this attitude with me? I said, you know, I went 33 years without a husband. I said, I, my daughter died. You know, my son's a drug addict. Look what happened to you. I never wanted you in that life. And it kind of hit me. 
it kind of hit me that, you know, I, I, I understood at that point, but it took me all that time. And then she passed away a couple of months later. So I, I was upset with the fact that my father would never take responsibility for what happened to our family. And I thought that was wrong of him. I think of uh, until today. And I think that was ego or pride or maybe guilt. I don't know why. But I don't love him any less. I, I don't have a resentment towards him. No, I don't. But, you know, the, the last couple of years uh, of his life, we were still, I mean, I visited with him, you know, and all that. We did that. But there was something missing there between us. Not love, but there was just something missing, if you know what I mean. I, yeah, yeah. Well, he was fully devoted even to the day he died, correct? Was he not? He identified as a La Cosa Nostra member. Yeah or no? Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, quietly between he and I, when, when we were both together, he would tell me, Michael, this life is full of baloney, you know, and, and he would tell me about the treachery and this and that and that. And that. But yet he, wouldn't, he would never, ever betray his oath. And to me, that was pride. It was ego. And I say, I say it, his legend in that life meant more to him than anything. And as a result of that, my family was destroyed. And, you know, that life is not conducive to a good family life. And I don't know, you know, look, a lot of times I've described that life as being an evil lifestyle. And I tell it to gangbangers and I tell it to these kids on the street. I said, because I don't know any family of any member of that life that hasn't been devastated. So any lifestyle that does that to an innocent family is evil. And that's how I try to tell these kids, if you love your family, why are you going to do this to them? If you're a single guy, you're on your own, you want to go for it, go for it. You're going to suffer anyway, but at least it's only you. But, you know, you got a family, you're destroying the people you love. And, and, uh, uh, and I'll stand by that until I take, until I take my last breath, because that's the truth. You're, uh, you weren't able, well, you either opted to, not to, or weren't able to attend your dad's funeral, if I'm not mistaken. Um, what was that like for you? Was that a decision? Was it something that just, you know, the circumstances were such that you couldn't or, just talk about that a little bit, if you don't mind. Yeah, you know, look, uh, and I've been criticized. People say, oh, I wasn't close to his father because he didn't attend his funeral. Listen, I knew what the what the uh, situation would be. I didn't want to take, uh, I knew who was going to be visiting my dad in the funeral. And I didn't want to put the attention on me or cause any disturbance or have anything go in that funeral parlor that would in any way be disrespectful to my father. People were there to give reverence to him and to say their last, you know, uh, goodbyes and, and give their condolences. And, you know, I was told, you know, I, I'm going to be honest with you. Law enforcement said, Mike, what do you need it for? You know, there's rumblings in the neighborhood. You know why? So what do I need that for? Now, did I visit afterwards? Of course, you know, and, and like that. But I wasn't there to be the center of controversy or attention. So is that going to New York generally for you at this point? Like, is it just something, a place that you just don't go? No, I mean, I have two daughters still in New York. I have family there. So I've visited many, 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 many times. I mean, I don't advertise it. Right, you know, right. for a long time, I wouldn't do a speaking engagement there, but I do, that, I do them now. Listen, you know, here's the deal. I never hurt anybody or put anybody away. Yes, I violated my oath. I betrayed my oath. Because remember what Omerta means. Omerta means you don't even admit that the life exists. You know, so I have violated and betrayed my oath in a big way. But I didn't put anybody in prison. And I didn't look to hurt anybody. I wasn't, re when I walked away, it wasn't because I was mad at anybody. I didn't say, oh, I'm going to get even with the life, right? You know, I took a 10-year prison sentence because it was the best deal that I could. I didn't cooperate to get the 10-year prison sentence. It's a matter of record. You know, it was the best deal for me to try to preserve my life. So, um, you know, in that regard, I'm okay. There's not people looking to hunt me down. But here's the deal. I can't go back to Brooklyn and say, hey, guys, I want to move back into the neighborhood. I mean, that's like thumbing my nose in their face. You know, that's putting people on the spot. Why would I do that? But is anybody actively out there, you know, because they really got it in for me? The only people that got it in for me are people on uh, on YouTube and social media that I don't even know. <laughs> I never even heard of them before social media that just want to talk about me and say whatever they say. But, you know, again, you you under, it comes with the territory. You put yourself sure. out there. You're going to have negatives, positive. And hopefully the positives outweigh the negatives. And I think in my case, that's that's the case. 100%. Do you, uh, I, this is more of an ignorant question. What, what is the status of the mafia today? Like you just don't, I mean, is there still, it, I know it's not what the eighties and the, and before that were, I don't think at least, but is it still, I mean, prevalent? Is it still a, a big driving force in cities like New York or other places? Or is it, is it, you know, kind of gutted at this point? 
Yeah, it's not a driving force anymore. You got to understand from the 50s right through the mid 80s, that was the golden years of the mob in America and especially in New York. I mean, we controlled so much. Yeah. Uh, but the RICO Act and all that destroyed all of that. And um, they're still there. It's not going to go away in my lifetime, I'm sure. But they don't have the control over the unions like we had. They don't have the political clout like we had. They're not into businesses like we had before. You know, I'll give you a prime example. Back in uh, when I was on the street, there wasn't a day practically that went by without a mob story being a headline in almost every major newspaper. Right. Every day, yeah. several times a week. Now, you know, I read online, you know, every morning. If I see a mob story, maybe once every six months, yeah. maybe, you know. So, you know, it's it's not it's not what it was before. What is it then? Like, so what is a, 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 a mafia member today? Like, what's the value of being one for them? I don't know how much value there is right now. I mean, look, you know, I mean, still extortionate means, I mean, shaking people down, still get involved in gambling in a way, even though, you know, today people can gamble anywhere they want. Right, right. <laughs> um, you know, so, I mean, there's still rackets like that going on. And obviously there were a couple of busts, you know, in the last year or so where, People are still shaking people down and trying to use the unions and all of that. But it's not anywhere near to the level. I mean, look, to me, to become a member of that life today, you got to be out of your mind, out of your mind. You know, with the government resources, with the informants on the street, with the with the tools and weapons that they have, it's it's crazy. You uh, you had a relationship, at least to some extent, with John Gotti. We talked about him. It almost feels like, you know, in popular culture, he's probably the last you know hyper famous mafia guy uh, that, that we know of. What was he like outside of what we saw in the newspapers when I was growing up? 80s, 90s, I told you, I grew up on Long Island. Like, yeah, I always heard about John Gotti, right? So what was he like on the on the other end, on your end? What was he like as a, as a guy on the streets with you or, or as a mafia boss? Just kind of curious. Well, listen, you know, socially, he, he was a lot of fun. I mean, I, I didn't go out with him all the time, but the few times that I did bump into him in regimes or places in, in, in New York, he was a lot of fun. He was, you know, a bigger than life character. Uh, he was very charismatic, in my opinion. And, uh, you know, you couldn't miss him. Let's put it that way. Business-wise, he was very difficult to deal with. You know, John was narcissistic in a way, and I don't think I'm saying anything out of turn. He never wanted to lose an argument. You know, if you had a issue with him, you had to know how to outsmart him if you were going to get your way by letting him think he won when you got what you want anyway. Because he would never walk out of an argument thinking that he lost. Never. So, you know, he was very difficult to deal with in that regard, at least when you were his opponent. Now, if you were part of his crew and his ally, maybe it was different. You know, I mean, look, there's been a lot of tapes where he said a lot of things that kind of, uh, you know, display his character a little bit, the way he carried himself. But, you know, I had, I had nothing against him. You know, I didn't want to be in business with him because I knew it would be hard to tolerate. But other than that, I had no against, nothing against him at all. <clears throat> wow. Yeah. It felt like I couldn't go through this without at least asking about him. So let's sure. flash kind of back and then forward. So uh, you you get a 10-year uh, sentence. You serve, what, about 45 months of that? Um, I, served, I served, I think, 43 months on the original 10. Yeah. On the original 10. You're released. Uh, there's a parole violation. You're put back in prison. And if you don't like, I think somewhere in there is where you found the path to the lifestyle that you have today. Do you mind just sharing? Like, what was the what was the moment? What what was it that pivoted you from, as I said in the bio, from actually, I think you said it. What was the, the exact phrasing? Former mob captain becoming a soldier in the army of the Lord Jesus. What was that pivot point? What what uh, talk through that, if you don't mind? Well, you know, understand this. I, I had married my wife just before we went into, I went into prison rather. And so um, she was a strong Christian, as was her mom, my mother-in-law. And they were, you know, they were preaching the gospel to me in a way, you know, during that time. But quite honestly, I wasn't buying into it. You know, I, I was listening and I was being courteous and I respected their views, but it didn't sink in for me. You know, I was always a guy where I was in control of myself and I can handle anything and I'll get things done. I'm that type of personality. But when they violated me, uh, you know, on this uh, nonsense violation, and basically, look, I was trying to make the government believe that I was a good guy now, I was out of the life. Yeah, I'll cooperate with you a little bit. But in the end, I was trying to manipulate them. I knew that I wasn't going to get on this trial and testify against you know, any of my former associates. So, you know, I was trying to manipulate them. And I did. 
And it caught up to me and they realized that. They violated my parole, threw me back in prison, said, we're not talking to you anymore. We're putting you away for the rest of your life because they realized I was playing a game on that. And uh, they said they're indicting me on new charges and they violated my parole. They gave me the maximum four years on the violation and they were going to hit me with other charges, the whole thing. So that first night in the hole, they put me in L.A. County because they were going to bring an uh, L.A. Uh, federal jail in L.A. And they were going to transport me back to Brooklyn where my case was in the morning to face the judge. Uh, it was the worst night of my life. You know, it was a night that I really lost, felt I lost control of my life. They're going to put me away forever. I'm going to lose my wife. We got two little babies at home. Um, they can't put me out on the yard because the word is out that I was, a, a, you know, that I was looking to hurt people. I said, I'm going to spend the rest of my life in a hole and just six by eight cell. These people hate me. So it was the first night, honestly, that I felt hopelessness. I said, there's nothing I can do about this. Everything is I'm done. And uh, it was a prison guard that actually handed me a Bible that night. He looked in on me. He said, you know, you don't look good. And originally I chased him. I said, get away from me, man. Don't, don't bother me. You know. And he came back, pushes the Bible through the slot on the door. And I picked it up. And I can honestly say my, my journey of faith started that evening. And uh, for the next 29 months and seven days, because you count the days when you're in solitary, you count the days in prison. You know, I spent, you know, reading my Bible, but I, I did it differently. I was looking for evidence. I said, why, do, why should I believe this? You know, I, I want to see that because that's how I am. You know, evidence has played an important role in my life. I mean, five trials, you, you name it. I think in terms of evidence. So I'm a factual guy in that regard. So I had my wife send me books on, on other faiths. I wanted to explore everything. I had nothing but time on my, my hands, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, me and, and at six by eight cell. So I did all my research and I came away a person of faith in Jesus Christ. That's what wow. me. Yeah. Yeah. At this point, you're, you're fully in that, in that, in that world. Like, is there any moments where you get drawn back into your old identity? I, I'm fascinated by the idea we talked about before we started recording, like, you know, for, for a guy like me to quit an executive career and go entrepreneur felt like, you know, I'm, I'm making the biggest leap across a chasm you know, as wide as the the Grand Canyon, right? Like, oh my God. But then I hear stories like yours, right? Going from, you know, one of the highest earning mafia captains rated in a magazine, for God's sake, to now speaking I've locally. Unfortunately, I missed you when you were here locally, but speaking on stages and talking to, uh, I had a guy, Shay Hillenbrand on. I don't know if you know Shay uh, Hillenbrand on the podcast, but he remembers you speaking in the Red Sox locker room when he yeah, was a player yeah, for them. Yeah, he's, a, he's a ball player, right? Ball yeah. Player. Yeah, third yeah. baseman. So he's like, oh yeah, I know Michael Fran. He came and spoke to us. Like, I mean, this is where you are now. You're doing this. You're, you're going, like you said, you're kind of giving back based on the life you had. Like, do you ever have moments where, where you get drawn back to that or, or yeah, let's start with that question. I have a couple of follows, but let's start with that. Well, I certainly did. You know, there is a saying, you can take the boy out of Brooklyn, but you don't take Brooklyn out of the boy. So it took me a long time to, you know, really disassociate myself mentally from the life. Yeah. How, how do you? You know, it's, it's just by pursuing your other life, <laughs> you know, yeah. your now life and being firmly entrenched in that. And, you know, you, you can't be a Christian and be a member of, a, of an organized criminal organization where every day you're in violation of God's laws and the laws of man. So you've got to make the break. So the more entrenched you get in, in, the, uh, in your today life, the less pull you have from your old life. And then, of course, look, I always talk about this. You know, accountability is everything in life. Who you are accountable to is really going to set the path that you're on. And, you know, when I was on the street, I was accountable to my oath, to my boss, you know, uh, to that life. When I broke away, now I'm accountable to God. I'm accountable to the people that have faith in me, my family, my wife, of course. I'm accountable to them. So um, I've been able to make that break. And I, 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 don't, I don't ever put that out of my head, you know, accountability. And then, you know, I, another thing I always stress is in life, you are who you hang out with. If you surround yourself with the wrong people, they're going to influence you and you're going to go in the wrong direction. So you surround yourself with people that, are in the right direction, that care about you, that you care about. And you, you, these are two tools, accountability and association. You use them properly uh, and you're going to succeed in life. Is there a, a point at which, and I want to get back to, to, to you transition. I have a question on that, but this just jumped in you, you into my head. You leave the, you leave the life, you go to jail, 
you come out, you go back to jail, you come out a, a, a born again Christian, right? You're a, you're a new man. You've formed a new identity for yourself. But at least in that time frame, you know, the mafia is still the mafia, right? Like, and, and you violated Omerta. Like you said, you, you went against your oath, which everything I know about mob culture, you're, it's punishable by death. How are you still alive? I guess is the first question on that. And then secondly, wh- how long, you know, do you still worry about that today? Like how long, how long did it take for you to kind of figure out like, okay, I'm past it. They don't, they, I'm not on their, I'm not on their radar anymore. Well, you know, there's, a, there's a, a couple of reasons for that. There's the practical reason. And of course, there's a spiritual reason, you know, the spiritual reason, which outweighs everything is that I believe God had a different plan and a purpose for me. And that's become quite evident in life. And the, he has a plan and a purpose for everyone. The, the practical reason is this. I understood that life very well. I spent a long time in it. I knew the mentality of guys. I knew what they would do. I knew what they wouldn't do, you know, because mm-hmm. I participated in those. One of the horrors of that life is that you make a mistake as a made guy or as an associate. Your best friend walks you into a room. You don't walk out again. Now, obviously, during my time in that life, I experienced that. And I was one time put on the spot. And it's everybody's going to have that turn when you're in that life, some way, shape, or form. So... When I left the life, I said, okay, they're not going to walk me into a room. They're going to work. They're going to have to come and get me. So what do I do? I move out of uh, New York into California. I'm 3,000 miles away. And there really was no mob presence out in California to speak of. So I'm out here. I did things. Uh, I was very disciplined in that I didn't go to certain places where I knew I shouldn't go. Nightclubs, bad place for me. I know who hangs out there. Could be a guy that wants to make a name for himself. He makes a call to New York. I walk out to the park and I'm like, boom, I'm gone. I stay away from that. I didn't walk my dog every morning at 7 a.m., create a pattern in my life. I didn't go to the same restaurant every Tuesday night. Hey, Francis is always here. Because that's what it takes when you, you know, you want to hurt somebody. You watch their patterns. And then you, you, you get there when you get there. So I was very disciplined in that regard. And then over a period of time, It came out that I wasn't putting people in prison. That's not what I was set to do. And everybody had their own problems. You know, they put so many guys in jail. I was the least of their concerns, you know? So, and everybody I knew during that life is either dead or in prison forever. Everybody. So it's all these new guys now that I never impacted or affected in any way. What are they going to bother with me for? Unless, you know, I'm bothering with them, which I'm not. Now I talk about the life. Yeah, of course. A lot of guys are doing that, but I'm not. I'm not pointing people out and saying, hey, this guy's doing the wrong thing. And I'm not helping the government, you know, figure out schemes and stuff like that. I don't do that. I'm just talking about the life. It's a platform that people want to hear about. They're very intrigued about the life. So, you know, that's who I was. What, what could I do? Is your guard completely down at this point? Or do you still have to tactically think and, and all of that right now? No, instinctively, my guard is never down. Mm. You know, look. I go to book signings. I have 200 people online. I'm in a public place. You know, I got thousands of people around me all the time. I'm, I'm aware and I'm conscious. You know, when I'm walking down the street, I'm conscious and I'm aware. It's just, it's just my instinct, my, the way, the way I operate, but I don't live in fear. Mm. You know, I'm not paranoid in any way. Um, I put everything in perspective. How trusting, how hard is it for you to develop trust with people? If at all, is that, does that, is that a factor? Your former life, is that a factor in meeting and getting to know new people? You know, I, I'm a pretty trusting guy. I mean, usually with me, you start out at a thousand percent and you, you got to work down from there unless I know something about you that, you know, I shouldn't trust. But, uh, but I, I am more guarded. You know, unfortunately, I have good people around me. I, I'm, I'm an outgoing person, you know, so, uh, you know, I'm pretty friendly in that regard. And, and people around me are more conscious of that than I am. And they kind of rein me in, you know, um, but I'm also pretty astute in knowing who I'm talking to and, you know, Sure. The measure, right? Measuring people yes. at that point. So, yes. uh, all right. So going back to the identity piece, I want to, I want to kind of go through this because I, you know, again, the change from, you know, you're in jail for a number of years, you come out knowing you're a different person and now you're, you're, you know, I think the way I read it, like not necessarily intending to build the brand that you've built, but it happened. Did you meet a lot of resistance? Like, I mean, at the beginning, like now, okay, this is a guy from the eighties, you know, it's, it's well chronicled. You, you were brought up in Goodfellas. You're, there's a character that plays you in Goodfellas, right? Like you're, you're part of pop culture today, but back then just coming out, you had to be radioactive, I would guess. So did you meet any resistance in, you know, Hey, yeah, I can talk to 
young kids about not going into that life or I can talk to different major league baseball players or, or, or NBA players, different locker rooms. Like, did you meet any resistance back then that, that, uh, that maybe made you feel like, man, they're just never going to give me a chance. You know, not at all. As a matter of fact, I was sought after. I, yeah. mean, I, I never intended to be a speaker. I, I never, I didn't know what I was going to do when I got out of prison. I was thought the wheels were turning, but you know, to me, it was just the entrepreneurial. Okay. I got to get into business in some way. Uh, but I was sought after. I mean, people were seeking me out, you know, for different things. So I never, you know, I'm going to tell you a funny thing. The only time I ever met resistance or blowback, believe it or not, was from Paramount Studios when they wanted me to be involved in a new Godfather uh, promotion. And Paramount was afraid to use me with respect to the Godfather. I mean, figure that one out. Yeah. And they were, they were doing this whole clothing line promotion around me and Paramount thought it might be bad for the movie, the Godfather. I, I, you know, I laughed my head off when I heard that. I said, of all things, the first time in 25 years to ever meet up with anything like this was from Paramount and the Godfather. Yeah. No think Just the opposite, right? The so irony. The company, yeah. Yeah. The company that was creating this clothing line around this promotion was shocked. They couldn't believe it because they already created the, all, all the, uh, the clothing and everything. It was, it was shocking. It was that crazy. Is crazy. But anyway, yeah, but was- that, I never met existing. No. Okay. That's, that's interesting. So, so you're, you're fully aligned uh, with, with what you feel you should be doing right now. Obviously your message is out there. Your brand is fantastic. Your YouTube channel, anybody that's wa- listening or watching just, I mean, you'll get lost in there. So prepare for a lost weekend. You'll be on, on Michael's YouTube channel, but, um, but like what, when did you feel fully in like, okay, this is me, this is my gift. This is what I'm intended to be. When did that become like, absolute for you that that your brand the content you put out the way you change lives the way you influence people is what you're intended to do well it's really the feedback that you get and uh the fact that people keep calling you um and every place that you go you see the reaction and you say you know what maybe this is meant for me maybe this is what i should be doing you know and uh it became more and more encouraging and you gotta understand i never early years i never promoted myself i never you know, I never did any of that. It was just word of mouth uh, that people were seeking me out. And um, I said, OK, I really have something there. And speaking really became my thing. I mean, there was times when I was doing 70, 80 speaking engagements a year. Wow. And, uh, you know, everywhere I was doing churches. I was doing corporate events. I was doing a lot with sports. I was doing colleges, high schools everywhere, whatever venue they put me in, whatever audience they put me in front of. I learned that, you know. They always want to hear the story. And then whatever message I give within the context of my story seemed to be working. So I've been doing this 25 years now. And, uh, you know, it's only it only keeps growing. What's the thing that you're you're learning from? Because I know you have a community you coach to some extent in that regard, if I'm understanding it right. Like, what are, what do people come to you for? Like, what is it that they're most in need of? Is it strictly, you know, criminal life to legitimate life and finding God? Or is it is there is there, you know, Exec- executive guy to, to, you know, not being an employed person. Like what do people come to you for? Why are they drawn to you? And what do you, what do you coach on mostly? You know, life skills, uh, leadership skills, negotiating skills. So a lot of it is business uh, also, uh, but a lot of it is just life skills, especially coming out of this pandemic. You know, people are dealing with all different issues in their life and uh, they come to me for advice in that regard and for coaching on how to succeed, how to overcome, how to, you know, be successful, be a better person, how to deal with people on a daily basis. I mean, I've, I've heard everything, quite honestly. And so, you know, what I try to do is give them, you know, the, the benefit of my experience, both on the street today and as a Christian. And you combine all of those things. And, you know, I've, I've lived a pretty full life in that regard. And I think that, you know, I'm in a position to give advice. And uh, it seems to be working, you know, and since the pandemic, like I said, you know, with this, um, uh, the inner circle and my crew, I would call them, uh, it's just, it's blowing up. I mean, it's growing. And what I, what I enjoy about it the most is that we're teaching people to hold one another up. It's not only about me talking to you, it's about you talking to each other. And, you know, I've been getting such great, great comments from people that, you know, beating addictions because they have people around them that are supporting them. I mean, things are coming out of this that I never thought would happen. Uh, you know, they're just organic. It's happening on its own. So, uh, you know, and, and I'm hoping quite honestly that this is something I leave behind and it's kind of a legacy that, you know, somebody will 
take it over and continue to have a community like this where people can just learn whatever it is they need to learn. And we're not talking about, you know, learning like in school, you know, and people, you know, we talk about negotiation just briefly. I give you an example. You know, I tell people you're negotiating every day of your life about something. You know, you're a married guy. You're negotiating with your wife, your kids, your next door neighbor. You know, you're in business. You're always negotiating with somebody at some point in time. And there's a skill to negotiating, whether you're in the boardroom or you're in your home. You know, how to how to get by and get along with people. And people, they don't think of it that way. But, you know, so just little things like that, that you can plant seeds in people's head and give them a little direction. If they pick up on it, it's a big benefit to them in their lives. And we've seen it really over this past year and a half. We've seen it grow and blossom in a lot of people. And it's very rewarding. Yeah, I think community is the currency of the future, especially as connected as we are nowadays. And the pandemic brought us even closer. People are more comfortable on video. People are more comfortable with the kind of the virtual interaction. So like wherever you are in the world or the country, it's it's easier to find like-minded people. And your whole story really is about proximity, I think, right? You, when you were, wanted to be a mafia member, a mobster, you were around mobsters, right? You meet your wife and her mother, they're Christian-based. That planted the seed for what you are today to some extent, right? Um, and now you bring people together around these life skills you're trying to teach and they have that that community they don't need you in there all the time like teaching or telling or whatever they can get that from one another as well because they're like-minded so i think that's fantastic i want to you know i want to make sure people know where to follow you and some of the things that you want to you want to make sure people uh know where to get them but i am kind of curious favorite mafia movie uh my very this there's there's kind of a tie in many ways let me be clear on this the greatest mob movie ever Really, Godfather One and Godfather Two, sure. brilliant in every regard. I mean, you you have to rate them as number one and two in the history of mob movies, right? At least in my opinion. Uh, it's because they're accurate in your mind. Like, is it like, wow, that really captures it, or were they just great entertainment? Yeah, just great entertainment, not totally accurate, but but a lot of seeds of accuracy in it, you know. Sure. Um, and just brilliantly written, brilliantly portrayed. Everybody did a wonderful job, and. You know, to me, a movie, when every scene is something you don't want to miss, every word coming out of somebody's mouth, you don't want to miss. That's Godfather 1 and Godfather 2, mm. right? One of the greatest mob movies that people don't, you know, they don't know about as much because it was a television movie, and that was the HBO Gotti movie with Armand DeSante. Now, the reason I love that movie is because it was my era. I knew all the players, and Armand DeSante was brilliant, brilliant as John Gotti. and the movie was extremely accurate. A lot of the information came from reliable sources and a lot of the tapes. Remember, there was 2,000 hours worth of tapes, you know, on Gotti and his crew at that time. Uh, and it was just brilliant. Everything about it was, was brilliant. Anthony Quinn, brilliant as Neil Delacroix. I mean, everybody was brilliant. So I love that movie. Um, Goodfellas obviously was terrific. A Bronx Tale was terrific. Yes, terrific. And Chaz, Chaz Palmateri and I have become good friends. And, oh, yeah. And it was just a brilliant movie. And another one was Donnie Brasco. Now, yeah. I will tell you this. In my opinion, that was Al Pacino's best role as a gangster. Wow. He captured that role brilliantly. His di everything, his movements, his dialogue, everything. It was brilliant. So, you know, and then look, Casino was a great movie. I mean, you know, it's hard to, oh, to you know, not enjoy these films. My two, you mentioned him. One was uh, Bronx Tale. I, I think Chaz Palmatieri is the most underrated, amazing actor of uh, ever. Uh, he's, I'm a huge fan of him. He has a one man show, I think. I, he might have been at Andiamo as well, right? Right before you? He was at the Andiamo, yes. Right. So, yeah, he is a brilliant, brilliant actor. He's, uh, he's a guy I keep tabs on in that movie. He was just fantastic. Now, now, now you just can't leave. I can't. I'll never forget that line. Now you just can't leave. Can't leave. Was, oh, you know what? And he's a great guy too. I mean, we've yeah. become very friendly. Him, his wife, I mean, and his, his son. Just great, great people. Yeah, and then Donnie Brasco is the second one, and it's funny because in in researching you and learning more about you, yeah, I've seen the Chaz Palmatieri episodes, which are so casual. He's interviewing you at points. It's you, him on your show, but he's asking. He's just this. He's he's in the right he's in the right space for him. Meaning, like he's a great actor and a great person on camera, on screen. Uh, but Donnie Brasco, I'll but, give you a little inside information. He and I, it looks like uh, we're coming together to do a podcast together. And uh, and you know the first um, uh, the first series we're going to do is on Machiavelli. Wow. And, yeah, and our take on it. And I think it's going to be very informative, especially to people in business, because Machiavelli. Uh, look, you got to He was a brilliant guy in, in many ways. He was a little bit, you know, a little bit out there, but he sure. was brilliant. And a lot of the uh, things that he taught are very useful. 
Interesting. Well, if you need a fly on the wall just to sit there and listen, I'll, I'll, sure. I'll volunteer. That would be. <laughs> but yeah. um, but yeah, and then Donnie Brasco, uh, Lefty Lefty Ruggiero was the Ruggiero. character that Al Pacino yeah. played, right? So what, probably yeah. my original favorite mob movie until I found The Bronx Tale, which was I think in '96 that came out. So uh, very fascinating. What about the best mob actor? Period. You mentioned Pacino's best role, but who do you think portrays, you know, the 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 attitude or the the you know the mafia the best? Well, it depends on, you know, which guy. But let's say Joe Pesci in that yeah. kind of thug role. Nobody beats Joe Pesci. He was, he was amazing in that regard. Armand DeSante as John Gotti. He played John better than John played himself. Let's put it that way. He was he was brilliant. Anthony Quinn, brilliant as as Neil. I mean, these are, these are standout performances that I don't know that people really see it the way I do. Of course, De Niro is brilliant. You know, Chaz, like you said, I mean, there's so many of them. It's hard to say. They're, they're neck and yeah. neck. Yeah, they're neck and neck. They're, you know, centimeters apart. On this topic of celebrity, before we before we wrap here, I'm curious, because in your book, In Blood Covenant, which, by the, again, I'll recommend it, Audible, Amazon, grab the book. Um, in that book, you talk about the, you know, the earlier days, the, you know, 60s, 70s, or even your dad. You know, there's a lot of interrelatedness between the mafia and celebrity. I mean, even the first story, you talk about your father walking into a record producer's office and the connection there and some of the some of the acts that uh, that that record producer had. But what 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 was the relationship then between celebrity and mafia? And what I mean, like Sinatra, like these guys were well-known you know, counterparts. Like, did they have roles in the mafia or were the mafia more? Hey, it's good to know those guys, or were they beholden to mafia members? Does that make sense? Yes. You know, it, it kind of went both ways, you know, um, in a lot of ways. Like Sinatra, obviously he had relationships. Was he controlled by the mob? No, he was not. You know, and a lot of people think that he wasn't controlled by the mob, but he had mm -hmm. relationships. He did favors. We did favors. Hey, I remember one time when Frank Sinatra Jr. was coming to a place on Long Island, the San Suzanne that my dad owned. It's probably before your time. Mm. And um, they couldn't sell tickets. Nobody wanted to see him. So we got a phone call. Hey, Frank Sinatra Jr. is coming. We filled the place for three days. You know, so we helped him out in that regard. Now, did we say, hey, you owe us? No. But when Joe Colombo had the Italian-American Civil Rights League and he needed entertainment, they all came. Yeah, hey, one hand washes the other in that regard. You know, so it was that kind of symbiotic relationship, I think, in, in many ways. But we didn't control Sinatra or Dean Martin. Sammy Davis, another one, good friend for us. You know, we needed him. He came and he was in a movie that I did. He wouldn't take any money from me. I had to give him a gold watch. I said, Sammy, you got it. no, no, no. I gave him a gold watch, you know. So there was that relationship. Now, you know, Lenny Montana, Luca Brazzi and The Godfather. He was a good friend. You know, we did things together, but I didn't control him, but he was with me. He was in my crew. Jimmy Kahn, very close to some of the guys back in New York, you know? So, I mean, but I don't want to get the impression that we control these guys and they were beholding to us in a certain way. They weren't. It was just, we treated them right. They treated us right. Wow. Absolutely fascinating. Where do you want folks to 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 go to follow all that you're doing right now? I mean, there's so many avenues. I can, I could list them off. I've been researching you. So where would you, where would you want to direct folks? Well, my website, which, uh, you know, leads you to every other different place is just michaelfrancis.com. Of course, I'm on YouTube, Michael, at Michael Francis. Uh, that's the biggest platform I have right now. I think we're, we're approaching 800,000 subs and probably had, you know, close to 100 million views in the last year and a half. Um, and then I'm on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. We do all of that. I'm not a big fan of social media, but you got to be on there. So you got your follow. You know how it is today. But, um, yeah, so I'm easily found. Let's put it that way. You Google me and a million things come up. Too many things come up. But yeah, yeah. But, and uh, I'll double yeah. down on Blood Covenant. Fantastic book. Easy, easy listen, meaning it's not it's five chapters. It's tight, but it gives so much. And we've scratched the surface on some of the stories that you told today. Uh, and then this Mafia States of America. I, honestly, I'd heard of it coming out, but then didn't know it was out. And now it's out. I was talking to uh, Patrick Bet Davids guy yesterday, Roy Castillo. And he was like, yeah, yeah, it's out. I found it and I downloaded it, but I couldn't, didn't get a chance to watch it before. before well, we, uh, I, I will tell you this, that was, um, it was very, it was an interesting experience. I spent, you know, 12, 13 hours with Sammy and we went back and forth and it got contentious at times. You're going to see that, but it was extremely well done. Patrick did a great job. Everybody that's watched it loves it. I get nothing but, you know, the highest comments about the experience. 
Um, so we're we're going to be pushing it in, in a big way uh, shortly. But I think you'll enjoy it. It's ten episodes. It's going to take yeah. you a while, but you'll watch it at your leisure. So all right. I'll and then another thing I want to bring up: I have a new book coming out. Oh. It's called A Mafia Democracy, and it'll be out in April. And you know, basically, I wrote this book because I see so many similarities between the way the government is operating today and the way we operated on the street in Cosa Nostra. Mm-hmm. And they're not good. You know, people tell me all the time, you know, that are disgusted with the government today, hey, the mob should be running the country. I said, no, the mob should not be running the country. You don't want that. But in a way, we have the mob running the country. And I wrote the book because I want to make people aware that our people in office work for us and they need to be held accountable. When they're not doing the right thing and they're not working in the public's best interest, they need to be held accountable. Now, this is not a fluff piece. I did a lot of research. It comes natural to me. When I see something, I can spot it right away. It's very Machiavellian, the way our government is operating. And I just want to make people aware. And I go right down the middle, Republican, Democrat, independent, doesn't matter. I'm not, I'm not taking sides in that regard. But I will say this, you know, people used to say to me, Michael, the mob guys, you know, more Democrats or Republicans. Well, we were all Democrats. And they say, why? I said, well, Democrats were easier to corrupt at that time. Just the truth. You know, I'm being honest, you know, and I'm not going to name names in New York, but, you know, you'll know them if I talk about them. And we did business with all of them. Wow. Wow. And in that regard, it is what it is. Could you give me again, I'll extend this forever if you if you allow me. So I'll I'll do it here, then we'll end it. But is there one example, one one specific thing that you would say, hey, right now uh, with this, you know, maybe from the book. But what is the book? Give me an example of life today in the government that feels like the mafia. Well, listen, I'll tell you this. Government, if you notice, people that we elect to public office, many of them come in as blue collar people. They make a salary, whatever. They come out millionaires, multimillionaires. That's not the way it was intended. Now, there's reasons for that. And I point them all out in the book. Lobbying. Okay. <laughs> Listen, you, you want to take one character. I mean, look at Nancy Pelosi. If she's 81 years old. She don't want to give it up. That woman wants more money than anybody else on the earth, you know, and all she does is fill her coffers every year. It's right out there. It's in the open, you know, and people, huh, it's okay. Well, it's not okay. That's not what it's all about. You know, some of the tactics that she uses with insider trading, you and I'd be doing 20 years for. They shouldn't be granted that privilege. Why? You know? So, I mean, there's a lot of things like that that I'm going to talk about. And again, it's factual. I support everything with documentation and facts. So, you know, I, I, I say I'm going to have to insulate myself when this book comes out. But, <laughs> yeah, hey, look, I'm 70 years old. You know, it's, it's time to, uh, you know, I continue trying to give back in any way that I possibly can. And I think this is, this is the right time to make people aware to hold our government officials accountable. And if they're not doing the right job, kick them out and put the right people in there. There are good people in this world. And there are a lot of people that want to do the right thing for other people. That's who we need in office. Love it. No BS assessment. That's amazing. Michael, man, I can't thank you enough for being on. This was the highlight of my week. I truly mean that. And uh, yeah, I, uh, I hope to stay connected. Well, I appreciate you having me, really. Well, that's it for this episode, but be sure you subscribe for future episodes. Give us a rating and review as well. It just helps us grow the podcast, grow the reach, and give as much value as we can to you on a week-to-week basis. Be sure to go over and check out GoBundance.com while you're at it. Check out Emerge if you're a future millionaire, our elite division if you're in that $1 to $5 million range, or our champion division at $5 million plus. Or on the women's side, GoBundance Women is available for all of you to join an amazing group of millionaire entrepreneurial women. And if you haven't already, jump on tribeofmillionaires.com and order the book that is the namesake of this podcast. And you'll learn all about what this whole GoBundance thing is, what masterminds are about, and the power of community, accountability, connection, and all of that as you pursue your goals. Thanks for listening again. We'll talk to you soon.